0: If you are new this morning, or if you're back for school as a Liberty student, we're so glad that you're here, and we pray that this is going to be a great year for you. We, uh, I have several college students in my own house, and so I pray often for Liberty, for the decisions that need to be made, and we'll be praying for you as well, and it's good to be with you. If um, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Second Corinthians 8. I, I would encourage you, of course, to be in the Word each day. It is... Uh, something we refer to quite often here, that you are to be in the Word, to know what the Word says. Uh, UVersion has a number of reading programs, Bible programs, that uh, can take you through the Word of God in a year. Let me encourage you to log on and start doing that. Set up an account if you don't have one. There are a number of uh, online uh, sources there. and Use those if you'd like. Or we have a trifold in the back, and you can find that, and you can let that be your guide as you go through, that you'll know God's Word, that you'll know what it says, that you'll have the Holy Standard in front of you, You'll be able to praise him for the things that he's provided, and all those work in conjunction with your time and prayer each day. So let that be yours this year. God's plan for a healthy church: to study through the books, First uh, and Second Corinthians. I've been gone for several weeks on vacation. Back last week, but we had a missionary presentation for Gideon's, and uh, just to remind me, I'm very grateful to Daniel Gillette and Daniel Wisby and Bill Tussie for filling in in those times when we were gone. Uh, it was enriching for you and a blessing, and we are very grateful for it. Now, last time we were together, uh, we finished up laying a foundation for our verse-by-verse study through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And we did that in order to examine the principles connected to the source of wealth, attitudes towards wealth, habits concerning wealth, some objective evaluation, and some biblical priorities concerning wealth, because these passages in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 deal with the New Testament standard for giving. And so it's impossible then to read those from my of my mind, impossible to read this passage, which is so unique in the church, it was so unique that Paul wanted to make sure it was forever framed in the New Testament as the example of what that looked like, that to come into that passage with no understanding or no background of where everything comes from and what the Lord thinks about it and all the things that he set up uh, would be fruitless. So we laid that foundation. And at the end of that time, last time, I asked you to consider really five things based on uh, the grace-based summary of spiritual instruction for a material world that I've laid out for you over the last several weeks and that we've covered so far. And to make these commitments to the Lord, to say to Him, as you understand where it all comes from, uh, allow God to be the sole owner of my wealth. That is the actual reality of wealth because the Lord says the earth is His and everything in it, which would include everything that we have. So uh, it's an understanding that God is to be the sole owner of my wealth. Entire control belongs to Him. Lord, I give it all to you. It's yours anyway. The second thing I asked you to do was to agree that the purpose of your life is to advance the kingdom, to bring Him glory. Use, really, uh, as a prayer to the Lord, use all that I have and all that I am to advance the kingdom. That is your purpose. You were set on earth to and redeemed to do that very thing. Number three, arrange my life in such a way so I can respond to God's direction. And that really has to do with how you're you're managing what comes in, whether great or small. Uh, I won't live at the limits of my income. I won't keep accruing consumer debt over and over again. If I'm overextended, I'm going to sell what I need to sell to get back in balance. Number four, I ask you to assess the value of all you're giving as investing in eternity, which is the reality of what you're doing when you give. I don't think you can take it with you? Well, you sure can when you invest in money belts that don't wear out. And then the fifth thing I ask you to to consider and make that a commitment to the Lord is appreciate and anticipate that God will return what I give in a greater and more bountiful measure. So this is not you imposing on God or putting words in God's mouth, as we've seen. God gives uh, us to us according to his own purposes and his own plan, and that plan includes promises to bless those who are sacrificial and generous. And we've seen that over and over and over again. So we're not somehow imposing on God and saying, okay, God, if I'm, if I'm going to be sacrificial, you've got to make sure you take care of me. He's already said that. So we just have to make sure that we appreciate and anticipate that very thing. Okay, so if you would look at Second Corinthians eight verse one, and we'll return to our our passages in Second Corinthians eight nine, return we'll to the verse by verse study through these two marvelous letters, and let's read the first four verses, if you will. Just read there along in your copy of God's Word, and I'll be reading in the New American Standard. You can read in whatever you study and memorize, or you can find that those uh, uh, that uh, version in the chair in front of you. Now, brethren. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. And verse 2, that in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Verse 3, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, marked this, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in support of the saints. Now last time we finished up uh, by asking a question, what is it about church that you look forward to the most? And we pointed out, if we understand this passage correctly, there's one thing that should make it to the top of the list, and what was it? It's the offering. If if we really understood the Lord correctly, a- and the obvious exuberance of the Macedonian believers, a- and if we only went with a few statements from Jesus, and we know that there are a lot more than just a few, uh, to help us understand the remarkable attitude of the Macedonian believers, we would look forward to the offering where we could give and give generously. And the first of just two statements from Jesus help us understand the mindset of the Corinthian believers. And the first one is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where Paul is speaking to the elders in the church of Ephesus. And this statement is really remarkable because it is the only place outside of the four gospels where Jesus is actually quoted. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, we see these words. Now, Paul won't see these folks again, and he's praying with them. He's getting ready to leave, and he's he's recounting the ministry and, and all, the, all the things that went on there and, and reminding them of some things. And then he's giving them some final instructions, and he says in verse 35, he says, In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, quote, It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. End quote. Now, you can imagine... Why that was such an astounding statement? Uh, because it sounds so opposite of what we would suppose to be true. Because in actuality, Jesus told Paul sometime during his training, "What you give actually brings you greater blessing than what you receive." The biggest blessing then is going to come in relation to your generosity, and and everybody knows it's wonderful to receive, and we learned that as kids at Christmas time, right? And, and and Jesus says, though, so even better than that is to give, and and please mark this. It, And I said this before, but I want to emphasize this. If that were the only thing in all of the New Testament that was said about giving, that should be enough to make it our favorite part of church. Would you agree with that? If it was the only thing that we had, Jesus' exact words, saying it's more blessed to give than receive, then giving would be at the top of the list. If that was the only thing, and that's certainly not the only thing. And apparently the church in Macedonia got that message. They understood that. So... If you, if you think about that and, and realize, though, that that is not the only remarkable thing that Jesus said about giving, he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, he said this. He said, give, and it will be given to you. They'll pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So those two statements, God will give you in proportion to what you give. And not only that, but he'll use the same measuring implement that you use, except he's going to press it down and he's going to pack it tightly and cause it overflow. So, interesting, whatever you give, you receive a lot more back. When you give, Jesus said, God will fill your lap to overflowing. So being generous in giving results in greater generosity to you from the Lord. And that's a very direct path of blessing from God. And you know this isn't new stuff. We've seen this all throughout the scriptures. So back to that first question... That should make the offering the most favorite part of church, because the great expectation then that we have in understanding of those two verses and what that generates in our own heart. So we we saw as we started the study, it appears that many Christians don't believe those promises. And the very first message we had as we laid this foundation, uh, I showed you, that's really no surprise that the offering is not their favorite part of church, and this really becomes. As we look at those two statements, this really becomes a matter of faith. They don't believe God's promises in this area, or they would give. And it's a really sad but obvious conclusion, and it really can't be anything else. And so instead of giving, we hoard or become selfish or irresponsible or self-indulgent or, or whatever because we don't believe the Word of God. And again, these are spiritual issues of faith and trust and belief. Either we believe it or we don't believe it, because if we truly believed it, as the Macedonians obviously did, there would be no reason not to act. Once you've established the life patterns that we've studied over the last several weeks to see how we're supposed to manage what God has brought in, there'd be no reason not to act at that point. Now, this is called a biblical worldview of material things. If, if we believe there is more blessing in giving than receiving, then we get. If we believe that what that when we give, God gets back more, we give. And of course, uh, as we've seen over and over in the past several months, it's also an issue of obedience. Believe, trust, obey. These are really keys to all of Christian life, so it's not unique here in this specific topic. We believe Jesus had to suffer for our sins. Uh, We trust that the blood he shed was sufficient to watch our sin away. We believe that uh, God, when he says, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Uh, We are obedient and we repent and we confess and we are saved. Uh, We obey the commands of Jesus and so confirm that relationship to him and give him an opportunity to work through us, believe the promises of God and obey his commands. So in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, it says, give, that's a command, followed by a promise, and it will be given to you. They'll pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you in return. So in everyday life, our actions are controlled by what we believe to be true. And it's it's our worldview, if you will, and it's the same here. And so uh, to not do it it's a twofold sin issue, because not to give is a sin because you won't obey the direct command, give. And it's also a sin against God because you don't trust Him to supply what you need and to replace what you've given. When it comes right down to it, it has to be those two things. Now, the great thing about these chapters in Second Corinthians is that, that we're going to see believers who obeyed God and trusted His promises. And that's why they became the standard or the model for giving. Now, let's go back to our passage, get a feel of our passage and we're going to get some important background information now about our passage, because as we uh, study this new section, as is our habit, we always get some background in this section now that we know where everything comes from and how we're supposed to manage it. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. Now, uh, they're the model for Paul, uh, for this Corinthian church, too, because he's making it obvious to them in his letter, and of course, then on down to us. And, and as we look at uh, this New Testament model, you're going to find that believers gave through the church. We don't have any other examples. So they gave, and they gave through the church, and they really did it for two reasons. They did it two, for two reasons. First of all, they did it so that the leaders could be supported. These are the ones who led and served and worked in, in and through uh, the church. So we can find this reason really recorded for us in a number of places, but I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 uh, through 15 if you do that. 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15. Some reason we're out of sync either that's not the slideshow or, or they're out of sync somehow. Um, turn to slide 10 if you would, Chris. Turn to First Corinthians chapter 9 verse one if you would and, and let's read together. First Corinthians I re- rather 1 Corinthians 9 verse one. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So Paul is speaking to them and obviously there's some trouble there. And so he's making some things clear and, uh, again, defending himself to the church, so disrespectful to him. Are you not my work in the Lord? Verse 2, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Verse 4, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? What's the problem? So the problem is he's serving in the church. Uh, He has a right for them to support him in his work. However, there's some trouble and they're questioning all of these kinds of things and requiring Paul to work and and, uh, support his ministry outside of that of uh, the ministry to the church, and so he's beginning to work through this, and then he uses some examples. Look at verse seven in your copy of God's Word: Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Verse eight: Am I not speaking these things according to human judgment? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the the law, uh, or do, does not the law also say these things? Verse nine: For it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So, what he's doing is, he's just taking some examples of things that we do where the living is built in, if you will. And these are used as an example of what it is to be done in the church. These are New believers, that's the new church, and even though some are disrespecting Paul, trying to embarrass him, Paul is setting up a foundation from the Old Testament on New Testament giving. And one of the two things to which New Testament believers gave was to the support of the leaders of the church. And so he says this, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do not we more... Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So, not only are these agrarian examples of how things are supposed to be, and also soldiering, where uh, living is built in, uh, but there is also an obvious precedence from Old Testament, the Old Testament theocracy, right? And then Paul ties it to the present church era. Look at verse 14. So the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel, but I have used none of these things, Paul says, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make a boast, my boast, an empty one. So here's the deal. You can see the trouble. You can see how Paul makes his argument and says, listen, this is how it's supposed to be done. Don't we even have examples from the oxen treading out the corn? You're not supposed to muzzle them. Is that for oxen's sake? No. It was for an example later on. And we see the example, and then we see doesn't a soldier go, and and he doesn't soldier at his own expense. And, And if you these, these are the kinds of things that you understand, and you understand those who perform services at, at, in the temple, that they attend regularly at the altar, they eat from the food of the altar. So these things provide their living, and so Paul says, and so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel. So here we're right into Paul's time. Those who proclaim the gospel, they get their living from the gospel. But then he says this, he says, because of the trouble in the church, I haven't claimed any of those things, and I haven't done any of those things, and I'm not writing to you, he says, so that you will do them in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast a nifty one in other words he's just going to create a stumbling block for someone and they're just going to struggle with it and so he's not going to say hey i'm not going to do it he's, he is definitely not going to take it so that no one has trouble later but that doesn't that doesn't thwart the instruction that is it's that's how it's supposed to set up and so we understand that when the when the people in the new testament church gave they gave for the first reason that the leaders could be supported paul confirms that to be the case Paul says this is what should be done and this is why it should be done but I'm not claiming any of it because some are saying and we looked at this before Paul's just in it for the money so Paul says I'm not going to I'm not going to confirm somehow your false suspicion of me. So Paul is dealing with the situation as best that he can. He's working as a tent maker and we saw this in our introduction to 1 Corinthians literally working as a tent maker building tents out of skins and providing a living for himself and for those with him in order to avoid the harshness of the church but Paul says That's not as it should be. Now, as we mentioned earlier, that's not the only place. If that were the only place that Paul gave, that should be enough. It's not the only place. There are some other places that say the same thing. Galatians chapter 6, particularly. Galatians 6, 6, it says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And then he goes on, uh, to comment on the sowing and the reaping and the doing good and 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 hold on and do these things, and you'll reap if you faint not, uh, especially doing good to the household of faith, and then he remarks on those who've given him a hard time about this, and even though he sacrificed greatly to minister the gospel. So he has a number of other things to say, but he starts out with that saying there verse six, he says, the one who's taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And then another place we see that is in sec- is in First Timothy chapter five verse 17 where he says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox. Again, Paul brings this back and he's teaching Timothy, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the New Testament teaches us that people come together on the first day of the week, and they gave through the church to support those who work in the church, spiritual leaders. Secondly, we see in the New Testament, for a New Testament model, the second reason the New Testament believers gave through the local church is they gave to support individuals in the church who had need. So the first one is to support those who led the church. second one is to support individuals in the church who had need. Many in the church were in great need at this time. Many people who had suffered persecution under Roman rule were in dire need. Many who came to Christ at Pentecost who were, uh, were not able to get their old jobs back because of persecution from their own countrymen. So the Jerusalem church was blessed with many who were in it, and stayed in Jerusalem, or who came back, but there were many that were in great need. And although we don't have that persecution on us, and we are in a very affluent society, there are still those who have needs in the church, and we still do this today. So we give in support of the church ministry, and those that lead it, including our missionaries around the world, because they are... Church leaders as well, and they are planting churches and supporting churches and discipling and uh, and raising up converts and all of those kinds of things. So we support that money still goes there, and we give in support of the church ministry and those who lead it, and also give in support for those inside the body of Christ who have need. So when we read the passage in Second Corinthians eight one, it says, "Now, brethren, particularly verse four, it says, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia.'" that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy, their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation, mark this, in support of the saints. So this offering is going to do what? It is in support of people who have need in the Church. It's talking, first of all, about meeting the needs of those within the Church, and specifically here not the needs of those within the Corinthian church, but instead those that had need in another church, and that is the church of Jerusalem and mark this: The byproduct of the Apostle Paul's request for generosity towards the church in Jerusalem is the pattern and the standard for all New Testament giving. So this particular example, as Paul is seeking an offering to support the church in Jerusalem, got captured and framed, if you will, in the New Testament to become the example of what New Testament giving looks like. And as we work our way through, you'll see that right away. So many foundational things here that we're going to see in the next two chapters. And and it really doesn't matter what the request might be or what the issue is or, or for which need the money will be used, kingdom purposes, of course. Paul's teaching here will show the heart of all giving, what New Testament looks like and the heart of all that giving. But these passages specifically will focus on the needs of the saints in the church in Jerusalem. And, and we mentioned this just briefly. This church in Jerusalem was a church with a lot of need. And I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Will you do that? Acts chapter 2. We'll be in a number of places today as we lay the foundation for this particular passage and its context, which is very important, I think, so we have it clear that the people gave through the church, and they gave. Um, then it went to those who led the church and those who were inside the church who had need. And I think that's important to understand all this background in order to, to clearly discern how we would come away from these two chapters. Acts chapter two, verse five. It's a great passage, and I think you'll you'll really enjoy this as the church is being set up. Verse five of Acts two says, "Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven." And we're talking about Pentecost here, and a great rushing wind, and and a number of things are happening as the Holy Spirit comes and is demonstrated here initially as the, at, the, at the start of the church, verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed, verse 7, and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So how come, how come we're hearing our languages when all these guys are all Galileans? Why is this the case? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, verse 11 Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, that's an interesting that's an interesting passage, it has to do with a uh, sign given there at the beginning of the church that confirmed the messenger and confirmed the message. sign gift we don't see anymore, but it's a sign gift that was part of what happened here. Now skip forward to the, re- to the results of Peter's sermon. Uh, so you just finished reading verse 11. Skip forward to verse 37. Verse 37, Acts 2. And when they heard this, so Peter is preaching, all these people are together, And they hear his preaching and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So he gives them the gospel. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Verse 40, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So this is a big church, and there's a lot of need. There is a lot of need in a church that's that size now, let alone then. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we see another 2,000 men added to their membership. So this, this is an important thing to mark. The church in Jerusalem had a lot of need, number one because it was populated by many who had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and that's the Feast of Weeks or first Fruits. So they were there for the festival days. And then the Lord poured out His Spirit, and the gospel went out, and the church was established, and many thousands came into the church on that day. And just a, a very short time later, another couple thousand. So this is a very large church. And so they're there, and they would received the gospel, and they stayed in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of need there, because the church started there, and there's a big, huge amount of people. And as a footnote, we know uh, that God later used the intense persecution of the Christians shortly after Stephen's preaching in Acts 7, of which Paul had no small role, to send many of them out from this church to other parts of the world. And we'll get to that. Now, I'd like you to just skip forward to Acts chapter 11. Will you do that? Acts chapter 11. So you're moving from Acts 2 to Acts 11. Just go forward. And support for you to read this, beloved, so please have your Bible out, make sure you're reading this and understanding what's going on here, seeing these words and then connecting them to what we're studying, is super important. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, so we just mentioned this, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. So they had come to faith. Stephen had been stoned by the Jewish leaders. Many of the Christians left the city. They were worried about the persecution, and they went out, and they went out to Cyprus and Cyrene and to Antioch, and they began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So, they go out from Jerusalem and they begin to speak the word of God, the the gospel to those they impact, the first just speaking to Jews and many are coming to faith. So the church is growing rather rapidly. So, So further, God also used the destruction of Jerusalem later in AD 70 to create this dispersion of the Jews and Christians from that city, which explains why sending the Christians out during Stephen's persecution was so important. The Lord is looking out for those who are his and he's sending them out of that city and many departed that city and started spreading the gospel all over the place. Now, that church in Corinth, Whose letter we are studying now was established by Paul on his second missionary journey. Do you remember this? And we looked at this. He was assisted, though, do you remember, by two people? Do you remember who they were? They were Priscilla and Aquila. There you go. Two members of uh, two Jewish believers. Now, mark this. Who came to know Christ either in Jerusalem at Pentecost or from a believer who came from Jerusalem later after Stephen's persecution, right? Because those are really the only two choices, are they not? Because that was the only place to go to church in the entire world. So you didn't have people saying, well, I don't like this church anymore, I'm going somewhere else. Well, there wasn't someplace else, okay? There was only Jerusalem, and then persecution, and then you're going out and you're quietly sharing the gospel with other Jews, and then churches are starting to be planted, okay? So Priscilla and Aquila are there in Corinth, and Paul shows up, and Priscilla and Aquila... And Paul began to make tents together and support the ministry, but he finds that they're believers, and strong believers, but there was only one place they could hear about that, and that was in Jerusalem, or from someone who came from Jerusalem and bumped into them on the way and gave them the gospel, and they repented and believed. So there you go. So there's no other believers anywhere else in the world. This is the start of this marvelous thing called the church, and it's moving out from Jerusalem. There were miracles being done by God, through the apostles, as a sign to the Jews, and to verify the message of the messenger, and the Holy Spirit had been given, and all of his power, and there was just a lot of excitement, and a lot of expectation, and compared to what was happening in Jerusalem, there was no reason to go home. You came to faith, and you saw all this stuff going on, and you realized this is really from the Lord, and, and this is where you need to be, so some of them didn't leave. And it's easy to see that the managing of all these new believers would become very difficult, Right? And that's why we see so much organizing and so much delegating going on and later as the church spreads out the appointing of elders to lead and men to serve the church in Acts 6 and to serve the widows who were being missed and all of those things. And this is an equally important thing to mark. So the church in Jerusalem had a lot of need because a lot of people came to faith and they just stayed there because that's where everything was happening. And number two, there's a lot of need there because of the rejection and the disavowing of converts. So. We see, even in the, in the news today, that there's nowhere in the world where Jews are more zealous of their religion than in Jerusalem. And it was the same during this time. To them, that is, that is the holy city, the most important place, and certainly it is very important. But in that zealousness, they attract a lot of animosity directed towards them. Uh, They're quick to condemn uh, people who see Judaism in Jerusalem and in Israel, are quick to condemn them. Uh, and and their right to that city, and their right to that land, and we know that there's a whole spiritual uh, nature involved in all of that. Very legalistic, very proud, and and in the Roman times, heavy taxes were imposed on them, so many of the families were not rich to begin with. Uh, Rome extracted from the lands they conquered, all the wealth, all the industry they could, in order to support the empire, which depressed most of the land. And, And the Macedonian believers were also suffering under that pressure. And in Roman times, as it is today, much persecution was directed towards the Jews, you know, except today, were you know they're in charge of their own country, but it's it's not a secret that most Muslim-controlled countries and the U.S. under democratic control would return and impoverish them if they could. And so, th- this is not a secret. We see this. It hasn't that hasn't changed one bit. They're in charge of their own land, but they're still a target for everybody. Everybody who doesn't believe what the Word of God says of those who bless the Jews will be blessed. Now, in light of that nationalism, then imagine a member of a Jewish family professing Christ as Messiah. Literally rejecting it from their perspective, in their mind, Judaism. Paul is a perfect example of those early responses. Paul is just like a a, a lion roaring everywhere, a bear just tearing up everybody. And they professed this way, this is anathema. We're not we're not going to tolerate this. He's hauling people to jail. He's sending people to their doom. He's he's going to other cities and and bringing people back. Right, and then the Lord interrupted that whole thing, didn't he? So. Those converts then would be immediately rejected, disavowed, cut off, much like today. They would lose their jobs, their businesses perhaps, family contacts, be thrown out of the synagogue. And and that understanding certainly brings in the spotlight Jesus' teaching in John chapter 15, verse 18. Remember Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So pretty clear warning about what could happen. And then later, in John chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, they're going to make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone uh, coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. That's what Paul thought, right? He thought he was offering this wonderful service to God by hunting down these these uh, heretics who embraced Jesus the Messiah. Then it gets really personal with those who are closest to him in Matthew 19 verse 27. And Peter said to him, "Behold, Lord, I know that you said all this. We've lost everything. I mean, we've left everything. We followed you." What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So again, just even backing into it. If you're sacrificially giving away even your own life and your livelihood for the gospel, does the Lord return it many times as much? Yeah, but that's that's really the end of all who follow Christ. And He just wanted to make sure. Hey, uh, Peter's like, we've left everything. We don't have anything. We left our we left our fishing. We left everything that we had. Right? Matthew's tax collecting. So Jesus said, don't worry. The, master, the master's faithful promise. He knows what's going to happen, and He reassures them that He's going to take care of them. So there's a lot of need in Jerusalem. Many traveled there for the Feast of Weeks, were born again, and they stayed. And then too many in Jerusalem were in Jerusalem already and then were born again and lost their jobs and, and their families and all of that. And then there was much need in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, and everywhere else too because of a great famine. Because of a great famine. We, we read about this in the New Testament. You've probably seen it, maybe not noticed what's going on. Uh, but you still have your finger in Acts chapter 11. So look at Acts eleven twenty seven, will you? Just flip forward a few verses there. And we'll see this mentioned, Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now remember, they'd come out of Jerusalem, believers had, and they had been witnessing, and many had come to Antioch and some other places, and so there's there's some believers there. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. So Agabus comes down to Antioch, he's among believers, and he begins to talk about the future. And again, this is a sign gift, and it was given to verify the message, verify the messenger. He's going to tell them what's going on. The Lord's taking care of his own. And, and it, it did indeed happen during the reign of Claudius, which is A.D. 41 to 54. And this this letter of Second Corinthians was penned by Paul in 55 or 56. So the church in Jerusalem would have been suffering through a very hard time, and Paul is penning this letter and talking about this difficult time during this famine that occurred from 41 to 54. And so Luke goes on to record then in verse twenty nine. Look there in Acts eleven twenty nine, and in proportion to that, any of the disciples had means. Each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So Paul will refer to this offering as we study Second Corinthians eight and nine. So they took up this collection in Antioch. Because Agabus came down and what did he say? Hey, there's going to be this big famine and everybody already knows that the church in Jerusalem is gigantic and it's burdened with people who came there and stayed after they came to faith and it's burdened with people who lost their jobs because they came to faith and it's now it's going to be burdened with a huge famine. So people who don't have their jobs already and people who are staying and just burdening the church, there's going to be a hard time. And so they decide, hey, it's probably best that we take care of the, the believers in Jerusalem. And so they took up this collection in Antioch, and they sent some money because the famine was coming, and, and so we know that people gave through the early church to support the ministry of the church and take care of those who led the church, and we know that people gave through the church to support other believers. And we're seeing this all over the place, aren't we? It's not, a, it's not in secret. And and we're be, we beginning to see some of the history behind the standard of giving modeled for us by the Macedonian believers. And the well-being of the Jerusalem church was a concern to God in acts and that's why agabus was prompted to relay the future and tell what was going to happen famine and it was a and it was a concern to God later in second corinthians that we're studying now and and sacrificial giving and sharing in general has always been a concern to God and so this is an important deal and that's why paul wants to frame it up here and we saw that over and over as we study uh, began this study. Remember if you remember because giving and sharing and and all of that has always been a concern to God. we saw it right from the beginning as we understood God had everything and then he was going to loan it to people and what he expected his people to do and they became this uh, this whole different kind of culture. they were supposed to do these certain things. Deuteronomy chapter fifteen verse seven, if you remember this, you know if there's a poor man with you so God's giving some instruction. He says, "If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother." Verse eight, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. So, if you see a need, you're supposed to meet it. Okay, and we, we've seen this over and over. This is not. This is not in the secret. Beware, he says, that there is no base thought in your heart saying. The seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing. In other words, in other words, you're thinking he can just wait until all debts are forgiven every seventh year, which was the rule the Lord set up in His new economy with His people. Every seventh year, all debts are forgiven. Whatever the debt was, it's just returned back, no debt. Properties returned back, everything switched back. Okay, so it's very important. Principle, but he says, listen, just because you know in the seventh year that that's going to be forgiven, and maybe you're in the sixth year and you're like, oh, he can last, you know, he, he's poor right now, but in a year, he can squeeze through, and at the end of that seventh, at the beginning of that seventh year, he's going to get all that debt forgiven and it so will be all right. The Lord says, don't do that. If he's got a need, you're going to meet it. So, you don't want, he, he doesn't want you to think, okay, I'm not going to give him anything, you know, he's, he'll be fine, and uh, he'll make it. Then he may cry to the Lord against you. And it will be a sin in you. So you knew he had need; you had uh, the ability to meet the need, and you didn't. You shall give; you shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. So you're going to do it cheerfully, and, and you're going to do it with joy in your heart. Why? Because the Lord returns back what he what you give, right? And he said, if you act like this in the land, your crops will grow. You'll never have any problems with your cattle, and all, you know I'm going to take care of you. See, he set all this up. So he's saying, look, don't be grieved. You got to help him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you and all your work and in all your undertakings. And that's the same thing we've seen over and over again. When you have generously, what's the Lord do? He gives back even more generously. And that's the same kind of language we see in 1 John chapter 3 verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. That's exactly what we're talking about in the Old Testament, right? You saw a need but you decided you weren't going to do it because he could stretch through. It'll be alright. The Lord says, listen, if you have the world's needs, don't close your heart. How does the love of God abide in him? If you're closing your heart, you have the world's needs, you see somebody in need, in need. you have the world's goods, so you see somebody in need, don't close your heart because how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Deuteronomy asks, do you want to be blessed in all that you do? Every, everything that you set your hand to? Then give. Same language that we see here. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it what? Will be given to you, pour into your lap, good measure, press down, shake it together, running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. These are all examples you can jot down in your notes. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Again, if you see somebody who's having trouble, make sure you take care of them. This is one of the reasons why the church the, the new church in the New Testament gave through the church to take care of individuals. How about Deuteronomy chapter fifteen, verse eleven? For the poor will never cease to be in the land. You're always going to have people who have need. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and your poor in your land. This is the will of God. Everyone wants to know what the will of God is, right? This is a place where it's clearly stated. And the responsibility is much greater than simply crunching some numbers and coming up with 10%, isn't it? You've got to be engaged in all of this. Psalm chapter 41, verse 1, again, great illustration. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. So in other words, do you want to be delivered from trouble? Take care of the helpless. Meet needs. Give to the body of Christ. Same principle. Verse 2. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth, and do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. Do you want to be kept alive? Do you want to be called blessed on the earth? Do you want to be delivered from your enemies? What do you have to do? You have to be generous. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed, in his illness you restore him to health. What's the point of the passage? God's concerned with those who are generous, isn't he? Those who meet needs. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. And I used that when we talked about investments, that the Lord's not against investments and that's the best one because the Lord always pays back all the debt that is incurred by people who have need. You meet the need and the Lord pays you back. That's a really solid investment, isn't it? You're not going to have to worry about that collapsing somewhere along the way. You can always count on from God, He always repays every time. Every time you give to a need, God repays you. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Do you want to bring honor to God? Or do we want to taunt him? If we say we are his and we call ourselves by his name, then we need to know that God is kind-hearted, and he's gracious, and he's open-handed. And we know that, don't we? We are the recipients of that kind-heartedness and graciousness and generosity every day. And if we're not like that, then when we call him Father, we taunt him. See, the church in Jerusalem knew these principles and they applied them, and we saw that in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, didn't didn't we? In Acts chapter four, verse thirty-two, remember. So here's the congregation there, their burgeoning congregation, huge congregation. You didn't get any ramp up, you didn't get to start with like, you know, fifty believers and hundred and fifty, and three hundred, then five hundred, and you made all the church growth levels, and then you got up to a thousand, then you got to two thousand. You just went from zero, you know, to three thousand, four thousand, five thousand in just a few days. So burgeoning need. In Acts four thirty-two, they understood that. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But isn't that the truth? Isn't that one of the things I ask you to affirm in your heart before the Lord? That everything belongs to Him anyway? Because that's the reality of it. And they understood that. But all things were common property to them. In their mind, what they had, if it could meet the need of someone else, that was all right. And and with great power, and the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. And anytime you're generous, beloved, abundant grace is always there. That just shows grace, because that's precisely what the Lord said uh, through Paul about the Macedonian believers. The grace poured out on the Macedonians. How did he know grace was being poured out? Because they were so generous and eager to be involved in the meeting of needs. And there was a lot of need, and so their task was formidable, and they set to it. And mark this, please, we are studying our passage, which will reveal to us how the Lord was able to repay the church. In Jerusalem. How's he going to do that? He's doing it from Antioch, and he's doing it from Macedonia, and he's doing it from the Corinth church. Here's these beloved, they these believers there in Jerusalem, and they didn't even consider what they had of their own, which is the reality. And then they gave generously, and they, but there was huge need, and the Lord is returning that on them from believers who live other places. And we get to see that return. See. And they gave generously. And unbeknownst to them, God was at work in congregations as far as Christianity had spread to pay them back and take care of their needs. Jerusalem was taking care of its own needs, selling property, making sure people had what they needed, and the Lord was already working in churches that had spread out from Jerusalem to make sure something was coming back to pay them back. And we'll get to learn how God takes care of the needs of this Macedonian church, too. Because as we read through, we know that when you give generously, God gives generously back just a really great picture of really. it and, and a pattern for giving which is general and universal and it's instructive and, and it shows the needed heart attitude in all of our giving all along the way okay that's uh we're out of time now so we're gonna we're gonna wrap up right there but when we come back next week Lord willing we'll dig into that passage because we've got we've laid that context now so they're gonna give through the church give for two reasons take care of those who lead Take care who have need, and we're going to see that happen, and realize that this offering they're generating is going to take care of ones who've already met needs. And Jerusalem, the Lord's going to just work through His own Word, bring them back. Just a really marvelous thing. Bow with me, if you would, in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. We're grateful to you for uh, a congregation that's coming and and being excited about about what's going on, and and knowing that you're at work, and and trusting you in all these things, and learning. Thank you for our faithful church here at Berean, ones, people who constantly are meeting needs. I'm so always so encouraged by knowing, that sometimes I don't know, but when I do know, when needs have been met, now people have been generous. And I know that, that you have generously supplied back what was given. You never fail to pay back. And it's not us forcing words in your mouth. It's not us proclaiming somehow that you want us all to be wealthy or whatever. It's not that at all. You have uh, determined whatever those amounts are, as we saw, in your sovereignty. But you use us in faithfulness, becoming an image of Christ, becoming a reprint of the gracious God we serve to be that kind of person in whatever level of income we have. And so, Lord, I thank you that you can help us learn these lessons, and I know that you have, and and that you've made it possible for us to move in that direction in such a great way. I pray to continue to work in all of us, because it's so insidious, insidious the world and and, and uh, material things and and wants it, and those things that we have, they're, they're gifts from your hand. We wouldn't have anything if it weren't apart, apart from you. You told uh, Timothy that, to tell those who are rich in this world and this age to, to be generous and rich in good works and ready to share. So there's no. There's no negative on having something. There's no negative not having anything. You're not more spiritual because you have it or you don't have it. You just want us to show the same type of attitude that you have always shown to us. So help us to continue to learn this lesson, Father, and help. thank you for the faithfulness that we find here. I pray that you guide us into the future as we as we seek to know what you would have us do, Lord, as we uh, work our way through these times of, of difficulty and there are much need around us, Lord, and I pray that we'll be aware of that. And Father, I pray that your word will go out in power, that we'll each be in it each day, that we will understand what it says. As we walk through the doors of the church out, we walk into our mission field, whatever uh, the Lord has laid before you, neighbors and coworkers and, and people you bump into in the culture. Lord, I pray that uh, we'll be faithful to give out the gospel, much like the ch- early church did as they went out from uh, where they were, that as they bumped into people, the gospel spread. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. Help us to be about that in a very winsome and, and, uh, and joyful way. As you open the doors. Let me pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. How God's people said. Amen.